The defining moment that led to me writing this book was actually when I stumbled upon the uh, concept of collective victimhood. Uh, I still remember when I saw it uh, on, an, uh, on the internet and I began to read about it and I just put away the computer and said, oh my God, this is, uh, they are describing us. G'day and shlam alochon. My name is Ninos Kanna, and welcome to this week's episode 148 of the Assyrian Podcast. Now, I've been staying at home in lockdown Sydney and catching up on some cleaning, gardening and reading. On that, a dear friend introduced me to a book written by today's guest. Now, she's a pretty patriotic woman. Uh, we definitely call her an umtaneta, but told me this book had changed her. I was pretty curious, so I asked, how? And her answer caught me by surprise, and I'll just quote, It made me step back and assess myself and how I can be a better Assyrian. I had to swallow my pride, but I realized that Assyria really begins with me, unquote. So I was pretty surprised how a book about the Assyrian struggle could impact my friend like this. I took the time to read my guest's book. The introduction seemed fair enough, but it wasn't until he categorically analyzed the state of our plight. All these observations and accounts from historical Assyrian writers and activists strung together in a collective diagnosis. By the end of the book, after such a compelling assessment, I found the author just leaves us be. I didn't feel easy with this. I I normally expect writers to come up with new ideas and solutions, particularly if they've diagnosed what's wrong. But rather than solving for us and claiming some intellectual leadership, he quite, in my view, humbly says that the answer really lies within us and sullies a call to self-belief. To quote, We need to defeat the notion within and among us that it is too late, too difficult and too impossible. We can begin to approach the goal only when we defeat the enemy within and depart from our self-destructive behaviour. So, in highlighting our shortcomings, our guest calls for self-inspection and dares us to believe in our own capabilities not of anybody else. This is as opposed to a a new tactic or strategy that I'd normally read in in a book about uh, the Assyrian struggle. So I highly recommend this book as essential reading for any Assyrian. Now, you might be wondering, the name of the book? I'll tell you right now. The Path to Assyria, A Call for National Renewal. And today's guest, Afram Jakob from Sweden. Now, The Path to Assyria, A Call for National Renewal, is widely available on the internet, including Amazon and Walmart. But before we begin, I would just like to take the opportunity to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcasts, and whenever you listen to the podcasts. (laughs) Also, if you know someone who should be a guest on the podcast, or even a host in your country, please reach out to us. You can find more information on our website. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalagarakos and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication. He has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards.
Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or telephone 847-982-9516. That's 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Yoshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. If you're considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California, John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Ashanas at 209-968-9519. That's telephone 209-968-9519. Get to know them a little bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. That's spelled O-U-S-H-A-N-A, theoshanapartners.com. And now, Afram Yaqub. Afram Yaqub, welcome to the Assyrian podcast. Taudi Sagi, thank you very much. I'd like to take the time to begin with your background. Where were you born? I was born in Qamishli, in the Syrian part of Assyria. Okay, and when did you go to Sweden? In 1989. You were a young, young guy, right? I was nine years old at the time. Nine. And could you tell us what it was like moving to Sweden as a young boy? Oh, I don't remember it so very much, but uh, significant change of an environment. And uh, for, for me and my siblings as, as young kids, it was just interesting when we saw snow for the first time, I think. Uh, you know, new, new environment, everything new. Yeah, including the education system. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, the most significant change in that respect was that you didn't get any, you did, the teachers didn't hit you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was a shock for me that you as a student could be very rude uh, towards the teacher and they could do nothing. That's interesting. We've had another guest who said that. She lives in Australia, and the one thing she noticed when she first moved to Australia was how you could get away with a lot and, and the lack of discipline. Yeah, yeah. So what did you do when you finished school? Oh, I, I went on uh, to study at the university for uh, a couple of years, uh, studied political science. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I, I went basically all the levels. Did you make the connections between your studies and your community? Yeah, I don't think I, I had so much intentionality in it. I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, political science just sounded uh, so, like something interesting. It was not, it, it's, it wouldn't lead to any specific job. Uh, it was like open-ended uh, and that's why I picked it. But yeah. I, I think I think I I have had in different ways um, um, benefits of having studied political science. Uh, how do you think that benefited you? Uh, many times I can feel I have a different understanding of politics, uh, international politics relating to the Assyrian cause than uh, many other Assyrians uh, who might not have. Uh, studied political science. I see. I see. So the reason why I'm so interested in talking with you today or discussing with you today is the book that you've written, uh, The Path to Assyria. And in this book, you have a very apt, in my opinion, diagnosis of perhaps some of the shortfalls 
that we experience as a community. And I just wanted to get the story on how you firstly developed a, as we say in Assyrian, uh, or a, an awakening uh, for, towards your nationalism. Yeah, okay, so it started back then when I was a teenager. I think I was 13 or 14 years old uh, when I first became involved in our local Assyrian uh, association or club uh, in the area I was living in Stockholm. And then I got more Was that Södertälje? No, that's close to Södertälje, the famous town of uh, more than 40 or 50,000 Assyrians. Uh, yeah. it's, it's another close-by area where there's also a lot of Assyrians. Um, okay. So I, I got uh, involved. They were the, the people running or you know, involved in that uh, local club were really nice and were very welcoming, so I felt at home. Uh, and my family, none, no, no one in my family had ever been uh, previously uh, involved uh, in you know, Assyrian um, associations and that kind of stuff. But I became and uh, I, I, I uh, became very active and eventually I also became a sort of member of a, a Syrian group called, or political party called the Assyria Liberation Party uh, or uh, GEFO in Assyrian. So uh, yeah, I went hardcore <laughs> uh, pretty fast. Yeah. What made the, or what typified the political party? What was its uh, objectives, platform, ideology? Oh, it was uh, revolutionary. Uh, I mean, it, it, it still exists, only maybe more on the internet than in reality today. Uh, but uh, the, the, the grand vision of the party was, you know, an independent Assyrian state. That, that's something uh, we have a right to no matter what. So it differentiated itself very much from all other Assyrian groups because it so uh, clearly uh, said, talked about Assyria. Mm. And was this in the context of, of what we would call sectarianism, where you have Syrian Orthodox and uh, people adopting a different identity based on the church that they go to? Uh, I don't know exactly how you mean, but I mean, this party involved different kinds of Assyrians from all different churches, backgrounds, um, and okay. it, it called for non-sectarianism within, within our community. Okay, and was sectarianism a feature when you were growing up as well, or was it more of a recent phenomenon? Oh no, it was. I think it was more of a feature then than uh, today, actually, if I talk about Sweden. Uh, we have a large group of Assyrians who uh, very much despise being identified as Assyrians. And their rejection was much stronger when I grew up, like let's say 20 years ago, than it is today. They're much more lenient or accepting uh, today. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, assimilation, actually. Uh, you know, the natural assimilation process that is taking place uh, makes people more relaxed uh, and the structures that would function to uphold such strong views on an issue like a clan or, you know, a family, uh, the, social, the social fabric uh, that is being loosened uh, with time 
is that uh, people become more individualistic, so they, they adopt their own views instead of just listening to a clan, the head of the clan or someone else telling you that uh, we should hate Assyrians, we're not Assyrians, etc. So, and that, that's, that comes from the assimilation process that is ongoing. Yeah, that's quite an interesting perspective. But I just want to get more of an idea on the genesis of, of the path to Assyria and, and how you got that idea. Uh, I think the, the process, it was a long process that took many years uh, because, as I mentioned, I became involved from my teenage years in Assyrian, the Assyrian issue, basically. Uh, and uh, as I grew up uh, throughout the years, you know, I was part of many different groups and organizations, and I was heavily involved in, uh, in arranging uh, conferences about Syrian issues uh, in the Swedish parliament, in the EU parliament. Uh, we worked with a group called the Assyria Council of Europe. We had set up a small office in, in Brussels to lobby for Assyrian issues. And I went to so many Assyrian conferences and discussions and participated in this and that. And you can say that this book is the result of all these maybe two decades or more uh, of involvement in, in Assyrian uh, politics, um, it, it led to me asking the question um, or, or having the, the feeling that something is not right, something is wrong, is fundamentally wrong. I started to question uh, all the things I had been told uh, about our struggle. So I, uh, I went, I underwent a, a, like a personal awakening or, or process that I began to see the issue from a totally new uh, perspective. I see. And what prompted you to write about this? Because many activists think of what's wrong, but you decided to put pen to paper. I think when you come to a really uh, convincing or strong realization, I think it's a natural urge to share it with others. And I knew that, uh, because I had practically read most of the stuff that Assyrians had been writing, uh, you know, contemporary and past Assyrians who were involved in the Assyrian struggle. So I knew that no one had uh, written something like this. Maybe something that touched a little bit upon this, but not uh, in the way that I had discovered it. So I've, I felt a natural urge to share this uh, with others. Uh, and um, I was a little bit afraid how it would be received, but uh, today I'm, I'm very content. Have you had any confronting or bad uh, reactions to your book? No, no. I mean, some, uh, I've heard some people who didn't find it uh, like very interesting, uh, but most people who reach out uh, are really, really thankful and say, I have never uh, th thought of our cause in, um, yeah, like this. And the, like this book opened my eyes. Yeah. W was there a defining moment where you wanted to write the book? The defining moment that led to me writing this book was actually when I stumbled upon the uh, concept of collective victimhood. Uh, I still remember when I saw it uh, on an 
uh, on the internet and I began to read about it and I just put away the computer and said, oh my God, this is, uh, they are describing us. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the concept of collective victimhood, uh, the description of it was a 100% match with what, what, what I had been experiencing throughout the more than two decades working in the Assyrian cause. Do you remember where you found this uh, writing on collective victimhood? Was it psychology? Actually, it was. Uh, it, I don't remember the the internet page, but it was it was a, a, a Google search uh, somehow that led me to to this concept and uh, the realization that this was actually a scientific term. It wasn't, you know, anything that some crazy person made up. There were the, I realized soon that there's research, serious uh, research into this concept. There are um, serious researchers working on this, and uh, it's a pretty recent field in research. Uh, scientists are the past maybe two decades have been realizing and uh, discovering this new, uh, you know, uh, collective victimhood. Uh, how it affects different groups and ethnicities and how it dictates uh, their behavior. You mentioned four key features of collective victimhood. Were these your own thoughts or did you adapt this from other sources? That's something I, uh, that's a distinction uh, I made myself uh, and it's based on the behaviors I have been able to observe within our community. Uh, I wanted to break it down to make it easier for the reader to understand what I'm talking about because I do believe that you actually can observe these specific uh, behaviors and there are actually four, um, you know, escapism, submission, apathy and powerlessness. Could you describe each one very briefly? I think before I describe them, I have to describe a little bit about collective victimhood uh, for the listeners who have never Please. heard this term. Uh, you know, we all know that a person, an individual, can develop uh, a sense of victimhood after uh, undergoing any trauma, uh, being assaulted, or you know, it could be a rape or anything. And that person would feel uh, always feel like a victim, and the person would feel that their fate is not in their own hands, and they would always blame whatever happened to them uh, on that. Uh, trauma. So the researchers have discovered that this is actually applicable on larger, more than one individual on groups as well. And it's pretty common for ethnicities and nations to uh, exhibit different traits of collective victimhood, uh, especially uh, groups who have experienced collective traumas like a genocide, a massacre. Uh, and it's pretty complex, this term, because uh, it has many levels. Uh, the level of uh, ex exhibited collective victimhood is relative to uh, the uh, amount of traumas experienced. Uh, so I broke this down into these four sub-behaviors uh, uh, that I think you can see in our own uh, nation. 
So escapism is about, you see, you see some Assyrians who uh, mentally uh, try to escape from the bitter reality and they begin to see uh, the religion as the way forward or, you know, the, um, the opiates are, you know, a kind of liberation. So they turn to religion, uh, they escape to religion f to avoid the bitter reality. So the church becomes, you know, number one in their lives. Everything revolves around religion and the Bible and uh, the second life. This life mean is meaningless, etc., etc. So I, I have, I can clearly see it in many Assyrians. So it's religion as a coping mechanism. Yes. For trauma. For trauma. Collective yeah. trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have another group of Assyrians who turn to what I call submission, uh, and they exhibit submissive behavior towards our oppressors. So they begin to believe that uh, in order to survive, we have to comply with or to submissive to our oppressors. And that's why you see a great amount of Assyrians willing to work with or be dictated by, let's say, Kurdish groups or other uh, oppressive groups that are, you know, oppressive uh, towards Assyrians who are occupying different parts of our homeland. And this is also a, a mental or psychological, uh, let's say, defense mechanism towards this collective victimhood. Um, uh, the third one, apathy. Uh, Actually, I'll take powerlessness before and I'll, I'll take apathy at the end. Uh, powerlessness is about, uh, this is very, very visible uh, in our community and it's about uh, feeling power, powerless, basically, that we as Assyrians uh, have no power over our fate and mm -hmm. therefore we need some external power to rescue us, to help us. And that's why we have been, for more than 100 years now, uh, we have been engaging in, uh, you know, crying for help, asking for help, asking for uh, recognition, and uh, just trying desperately to have some external power rescue us. Uh, and that's On this third point, I was just going to say, that was the most poignant to me. Yeah, yeah. Of course, all points were very, very relevant. But when I notice Assyrian causes, it always implicitly relies on a, a greater other yeah. to protect yeah. or to help. Yeah. So I can, I can give a, a, a historical, short historical review to just bring home this point about powerlessness. If we think about the different Assyrian figures uh, throughout recent history that you know have been somehow trying to do something for our nation, let's begin with Fredo Naturaya. That's the, the individual which most people recognize as being the first Assyrian who formulated a kind of plan for independence or autonomy. Mm. And if you look closer at Fredo Naturaya's concept, you see clearly that it was built on rescue with the aid of Russia. He saw, he saw Russia as the savior for Assyrians. And then 
A few years after him, you see different groups. Uh, the most well-known is the group uh, attached to Aga Petros, and then you had a group with the Patriarch and uh, Lady Surma, and then you had some other different Assyrian groups at the time after the genocide. And if you look at them and scrutinize their plans and uh, tactics and strategies, you see that they were all attached to some external savior, Aga Petros, uh, mainly the British, uh, uh, and uh, they the same. The, you know, they were appealing to the, to, to, uh, to the British to save them in different ways. And then uh, simultaneously you had in Syria, in Gozarto, the area, uh, eastern part of Syria where Assyrians reside, you had Malik Qambar, who sprang up as a leader, local leader there, and who also had a concept of autonomy in that area for Assyrians. And when you look at his plan and his strategy, well, it was all built on France being the rescuer uh, of Assyrians. But of course, France was the colonizer. Yeah, yeah, of course, uh, they had their own agenda. And uh, if you look even today, I will not mention any names, but if you look today at different Assyrian groups and figures, well-known figures, and you scrutinize what are they actually saying, well, they're all saying, uh, some, some of them are still saying Russia is our savior, uh, others uh, like to see some other powers as our saviors. So this is a mental cage we have been inside for many, many centuries, and we have great difficulty to escape this mental cage that we cannot see ourselves being our own saviors. We are doomed to always look outwards for help because we feel powerless. So this, this, is, this has been the, uh, the, the defining weakness of the Assyrian struggle for more than 100 years. I'd, I'd like to just uh, wrap up the, the, the fourth effect of collective victimhood, which I call ap apathy. Yes. Uh, so you have a fourth Assyrian group that, you know, uh, eventually become apathetic to the entire cause, the entire nation, the entire survival of the nation, of the culture. And at least I, I claim that you can clearly see these, these, this group of Assyrians as well. Uh, I, know I, I know many individuals who are totally apathetic towards our cause, and it's just because you know, they have lost hope. Uh, and as I see it, once Assyrians have been through the powerlessness uh, scenario for a couple of years, you know, when, when they have been active in an Assyrian group for a couple of years and they realize we are not progressing, we're not moving forward, we are regressing, that's when they eventually go to the apathetic fold and they join that group who is totally apathetic. They just leave everything behind and no longer care. Do you think that assimilation in Western societies has uh, accelerated or caused this apathy? Yeah, it, it certainly does accelerate it. But I, I have seen from, from observing closely how individuals, you know, enter the Assyrian movement, enter a, any kind of Assyrian organization. They are active for a couple of years and then they leave. They become totally passive and once you talk to these individuals, many times they will express, say that, you know, it's hopeless. It's, it's, it's meaningless because it's hopeless. There's, there's no chance of us succeeding. 
And so why should I waste my time on it? Let's just accept defeat and, you know, this nation will die. And that's when you have, uh, you, are, you, you have gone into a pathetic state from a powerlessness state. It's hard to get someone out of that apathy. It's very difficult. The only thing that could uh, change things is, you know, to uh, display some kind of progress. If the, if the individuals who are left in the national struggle would be able to achieve some kind of progress, that would gain the attention of the apathetic Assyrians, the Assyrians who have escaped to religion, uh, and the submissive Assyrians. The, it, would, it would catch their attention, and it would a uh, little bit begin to affect their behavior to leave the submission, the apathy, and the escapism. You're suggesting hope? I, I'm suggesting uh, realism, that uh, we have been fighting, uh, we have been waging wars, we have been participating in armed struggle, we have been uh, lobbying, we have been doing a lot of stuff for more than 100 years, and we haven't progressed. We have actually gone backwards on many stuff. Uh, we are demog demographically weaker, politically more insignificant, militarily completely insignificant now than 100 years ago. And so we have to be realistic and analyze why this is, uh, why it is like this and what we need to change mentally in order to be able to progress. Because many times we tell ourselves that, you know, uh, our situation is because of the genocide, of the 1915 genocide, or it is because, you know, uh, the British betrayed us, and, or we had really bad leaders throughout all the past century. And all of these are just um, uh, fake arguments uh, to hide the truth. The truth is that we have, as a nation, been um, in a cage, in a, in a mental cage that is called collective victimhood. Uh, and it dictates our behavior so that we can never uh, see ourselves as powerful. And so we cannot take any steps forward on our own. And we have to always wait and ask for help from outsiders. And that help will, of course, never come. Based on collective victimhood, what are the indicators of more successful nations? So according to how I see this thing about collective victimhood and you know different nations, I think there's a formula. The formula is that the success of a nation or a state or a group of people is relative to their uh, uh, ability to trust in their own uh, to trust in their own ab ability. So the more, more a group or a nation uh, trusts in their own ability and relies only on themselves, the more successful they will be. And the more they trust on others, the more likely they will fail at some point. And I, there's a re very recent example of this. If you take Armenia, just a couple of months ago when they uh, were attacked by Azerbaijan, uh, Armenia stood more or less helpless and was begging Russia for help. Mm -hmm. And that's why mentally they were still counting on Russia as being their savior. 
uh, and you, you can see the, the uh, dangers of that mentality. So they su su suffered a great loss of territory and personnel, military personnel, uh, because they were expecting someone else to help them in time of aggression. So if instead they would uh, trust in their own ability only and prepare themselves for any kind of aggression, I think they would have succeeded much better uh, in, in that conflict. So what would be the solution? What is your prescription? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, the, the solution to, to this is uh, actually simple in, in a way, but it's at the same time difficult. It's, it's about mentally liberating yourself from this mental cage. And uh, it's about understanding, about personal gaining understanding of these mechanisms, of, the, of these collective behaviors. And once I think one gains insight, uh, you start to scrutinize your previous behaviors and you, have, you, you will be on the path to thinking as, a, as an individual and eventually as a collective that is not uh, dictated by collective victimhood. Or by anybody else for that matter. Yeah, yeah. One of the problems I can see with this is that there would be a lack of trust between uh, activists in the nation. How do you mean? So, for example, someone will say, this is our interest. And then there'll be another group saying no and make allegations, for example. Say they're you know, working for someone else simply because they cannot comprehend that idea. Mm. And so... What is that a natural feature of politics? That's a natural, that? yeah. That's a natural feature of politics. All all uh, struggles, national struggles, are defined by uh, you know that being there being many groups, different groups, and different strategies. That's just natural. Uh, what we're talking about, uh, collective victimhood and powerlessness, is a little bit uh, something different. Is the key to unlocking the cage of collective victim, does it start with education? It starts with, uh, yeah, education and gaining insight of this specific behavior. Uh, I, this is what I'm starting to see with the book being read by uh, all kinds of Assyrians uh, all over the world. It has now been translated to uh, to total of five languages. And, Which languages? Uh, Swedish, English, uh, French, German, and Arabic. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so it is being read, and uh, the response I'm getting is really fantastic. And uh, there are many, many Assyrians who say that uh, I, I recognize this, and uh, somehow they all have been feeling this on a subconscious level, that there's something fundamentally wrong. And they feel that this book puts it into words they can understand. And I think when once you get gain that insight, that's uh, there's a mentally liberating sense that you transition to the other side. Now, when writing this book, I began to scrutinize my own behavior for the past decades. Right? Uh -huh. uh, I I because I was one of these Assyrians behaving according to the collective victimhood and powerlessness uh, uh, patterns. 
I was one of these Assyrians who was running to the Swedish parliament, knocking on the doors, asking for help. I was one of these Assyrians arranging conferences in the Swedish parliament, in the EU parliament, uh, issuing reports, human rights reports about atrocities against Assyrians, uh, having meetings with different politicians, going to the Swedish aid agency to try to convince them to uh, send aid to Assyrians, you know, uh, um, talking to journalists, uh, issuing press reports uh, in the hope that our cause would be known in the media. So I've been doing all of this and I did it many times uh, during my capacity as the head of the Assyrian Federation of Sweden. Mm. And so when I look back at all of that activism, I see that it was all meaningless and it was all dictated by uh, collective victimhood. I was like our entire nation engaging in asking for help, begging for help. We're asking outsiders to recognize our suffering, to come to our rescue. And that's because we behave in this way. Uh, we, we are in this mental cage. We believe this is the right thing to do. Why? Because we believe we, don't, we lack the power of doing it ourselves, so someone else has to come and save us. So I have also been there. <laughs> That's why I, I was able to write the book, right? And now, now I don't engage in that kind of behavior anymore. I, if you, if, if uh, any Assyrians would uh, approach me and say, uh, Afram, let's uh, try to, you know, um, arrange a conference in the Swedish parliament or in that, you know, any, anywhere. I'd just say, sorry, I don't have the time for that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a behavior uh, meant to call for help from outsiders and that's not interesting for me. I am more about building internal strength in our community and looking, looking inwards because we are powerful. Uh, we have all the means necessary. We just need to realize it. Uh, and that's when things will, positive things will happen. Absolutely. I did write a paper and it went onto Zinda magazine many years ago. You, do you remember Zinda magazine? I do remember Zinda magazine. I was actually, I wrote many times uh, about what we were doing in Sweden to Zinda magazine. Yeah, I, I wrote an article and I called it the Assyrian economy. And I basically put some numbers together of all of the diaspora and I made an assumption that Assyrians that live in the host country uh, they participate and earn as much as any other person does in that society from rich to poor and I added it all up and I equated that if Assyria was to have an economy it would be as big as Serbia yeah and that's not small that's not small yeah now, that, that's the kind of uh, thing that shows that you are you, you are looking inwards towards our inner strength. What, what resources do we have internally? Uh, that, that's, that's what I prescribe in the book, to, to think and to act in that way. We have a lot of resources. Yeah. Because many times, many times we, we excuse our failures on, you know, we are too few we have uh, too few resources or money, etc., uh, etc. Et Our enemies are too powerful. All of these are excuses uh, meant to hide this thing from us, the, the bitter reality. 
Uh, Did you know we have double the GDP, double the gross domestic product of the KRG? No, I didn't know that. That's interesting. In the diaspora? Yeah, that's interesting. Do you feel like Assyrians have this aversion to other methods of national struggle? And when I say that, I mean armed struggle or more radical ways ways of, of, uh, of fighting for a national cause? Uh, I don't think that's the problem. I, I, I think it's more about, uh, you know, feeling powerless. And that's when you do not get motivated to do the more radical stuff because you don't think in your ability to do them. Uh, but we have been engaged in armed struggle many times throughout the past 100 years or so. And, uh, but when you scrutinize the objectives of these armed struggles, you see that they have always been in the interest of others, either the British, uh, either the British or actually even the Kurds uh, uh, or other, other players. Uh, so we, and that this is, you know, our, our weakness, the collective victimhood weakness have been exploited by these different actors. Uh, I, believe, I believe they sensed and they understood us, us better than we understood ourselves, and they exploited us very well. Uh, so we, we, this is also a, a misunderstanding I get a lot about collective victimhood. People think sometimes that it's about being a coward, that we are a cowardice uh, nation, that we are afraid. This is not it. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Actually, we have been very mu much uh, you know, the opposite. We have been very, very brave. Very brave. Uh, and we have been very militarily successful, but the problem is this, uh, this braveness, if you call it in English, has not been utilized for the right cause. It has been utilized for the interests of others. So collective victimhood doesn't have anything to do with you know, uh, being brave on the battlefield uh, or on an individual level. Assyrians are extremely brave. And that's why I believe, I mean, when we as collectively transition from collective victimhood to a no more normal state, that's when there will be immense power uh, released uh, uh, that will create something very, very positive. I believe in our ability and in our power, but we just need to see it and recognize it. You talk about other diaspora communities, namely the, the Jews and the Armenians. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what's different between us and them? Or there's not much difference? I, actually, I, I use them throughout the book as, a, as a examples to illustrate, because I believe they have very similar experiences. If you take the Jews and the Armen Armenians, they both suffered, you know, a genocide. Uh, they... Uh, in many ways, they're non-Muslim also, both of them, and they waged national struggle like us uh, almost simultaneously at the same century or decades. And especially the Jews, I think, are one of the groups that have had very, very similar experience as us, because if you read the early Jewish leaders, the Zionist leaders, they clearly recognized at the time that their nation was also suffering from collective victimhood, although at the time this uh, word, the, the concept was not uh, existent, but they, uh, there's uh, some quotes from different Jewish leaders at the time saying that 
you know, they, they were telling their, their, their nation, uh, their movement, we need to trust in our own ability to, to save ourselves. And we're only fooling ourselves if we believe that someone else will save us. So they, they knew that they had this weakness, this mental weakness, and they knew that they have to uh, walk out of it and trust their own ability in order to progress. And that's, and that's actually when you see them also progressing politically, when they begin to trust in, solely on, in their own uh, ability and not trust in, even, even their allies, they don't trust them. Uh, and so this is the same kind of transition we need to do. So we're a little bit late to the game, like 100 years or so, but it's still yes. not too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Afram, if there's one message you'd like to send out there to our listeners, what would it be? I'd say, yeah, you know, go back to, to have another look at our recent history and challenge yourself. Uh, the, this book I've written is a bitter pill. Uh, it's not really a nice book, uh, and, uh, but we need to uh, be able to face our own history and to not accept all the things we have been told about ourselves and that we have been telling ourselves about ourselves. We need to scrutinize and re-examine everything in order to gain new insights. And I, I hope also that this book is not the last about this subject. I think we need more Assyrians to think and write and examine for us to gain greater and greater insight into our behaviors and into our struggle. Uh, so I, I hope this will be an ongoing debate, uh, intellectual debate among Assyrians. Fantastic. Afan Yaqub, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the Assyrian podcast. Taudi Sagi, thank you. Taudi. And thanks for listening to episode 148 with Afram Yaqub. What an interesting conversation. Now, don't forget to rate and review our podcast on whichever platform you listen to us on. Now, if you love this episode, please share with three or even more people. <laughs> thanks and see you next Tuesday.